As the world marks the 500th day of Russia's full-scale invasion, the Kremlin continues shelling Ukraine's peaceful cities, while Ukraine awaits strategic decisions from the upcoming NATO summit. You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, and I am joined by my colleague Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. This is our weekly overview of key events and trends in and around Ukraine during the past week. Actually, we take a span from the July 1st until July 10th, 2023. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypalukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Maxim, thank you so much for joining this podcast. So let us discuss the key events and trends in and around Ukraine from the July 1st until July 10th, 2023. What were they? Hello, Volodya. Thank you. So first of all, we're going to focus on the sad anniversary. This is the 500 days of Russia's full-scale invasion. We're going to talk where we stand. We're going to talk about the continued shellings by Russia of Ukrainian peaceful cities. On the international plane, we're going to talk about the U.S. agreement, final agreement to provide cluster munitions to Ukraine. We're going to talk about the uh, diplomatic tour President Zelensky has embarked on last week, including to Turkey, from where he brought several Ukrainian commanders that had been imprisoned since May 2022. Uh, and also we're going to, of course, talk about the uh, forthcoming NATO summit, which uh, is is not to bring very much to Ukraine tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. So indeed this week marks the 500th day of Russia's full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, what can we say about this anniversary let's say? So what were the discussions in Ukraine and during that time? Because on the one hand of course uh, we can we can always say that Russia has failed. Russia tried to in, uh, win Ukraine, while well, Russia tried to destroy Ukraine in a matter of three days. Now it's 500th day. But on the other hand, there is a risk that uh, the war will take much longer than it was initially thought, both by Russia and by Ukraine and by the West. And um, th there are lots of things to do to make Ukrainian counteroffensive successful. For example, the problem that we are facing right now is demining. Demining during the war, demining during the during the counteroffensive, especially in the south, because it seems that Russians have well prepared for this counteroffensive, and therefore Ukraine needs much more demining techniques, demining machines, demining equipment, so that our soldiers, our infantry, does not just blow up on the mines that Russia's Russians have uh, installed. So, what can we say about this? anniversary? Well, my key idea here is that 500 days is uh, quite a big chunk in order to put things into perspective and uh, to look back at this uh, big time span, essentially. So I would say that, first of all, uh, when the war, when the full-scale invasion uh, happened, 
um, there was much euphoria in the world as to how Ukraine managed to respond and to stand up to Russia and to win in many places in the battlefield. And now, 500 days uh, after that, this is the time, not just for Ukraine, but for the entire world, to understand that, that euphoria, as pleasant as it is both to Ukraine and to the West, uh, needs to wane off. We need to put it a little bit in the background and to uh, take it in that uh, we face much large-scale, but still very dull work. And I'm not only talking about the dull work, the protracted work uh, going on on the on the front lines. I am talking about the joint efforts because uh, the processes of uh, procurement of arms to Ukraine uh, may take long, but this is something that is very needed. We are now in the period when we can psychologically be a little bit undermined because we haven't seen any major moves on both sides, but on the Ukrainian side is what matters here, uh, since uh, November 2022. So it has been eight, what, eight, nine months so far. So it is easy to get into the sensation that there is a stalemate. And this is so drastically different from what we saw in the first month when Ukraine could push back so swiftly and so successfully. So for now, it is very important to remember that this is the war of attrition and uh, to remember how much is at stake, not just for Ukraine, but also for the chessboard, for the international chessboard that Russia is so desperately trying to turn over, to knock down and to introduce its own chessboard, how the rules in, in the world need to, uh, need to operate. So patience and persistence uh, and less euphoria than previously are the three key things that I would say are needed most in the approach towards the the war in Ukraine these days. Yes, exactly. And we need to understand that the, the, the needs, for example, that Ukraine actually has on the front line are changing. And uh, therefore, if the supplies of weapons takes a long time, so the situation can change. And, um, for example, Ukraine got the offensive equipment like armored vehicles or tanks but it seems that and i will repeat myself that now we not only need this but we need very very sophisticated demining machines that will be able to demine uh, territories um, on a distance for example there are there are machines that can demine on on, uh, on the distance of several hundred meters or even 100 meters because we need to understand that there is vast vast territories in the southern ukraine which russian ha russians have mined and by the way uh, a big number of these mines were washed away uh, because of the explosion at the kahovka dam mm, could have been washed away so uh, this is also maybe uh, will open new opportunities for Ukrainian army. But still, the, 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 the mining territories is very, very dense. But at the same time, we need to understand that you cannot mine everything, right? So there will be some corridors, there will be some weak points at which a Ukrainian army could actually penetrate. And the idea is, of course, that you, you have a corridor which can be probably several meters wide, but then you, you penetrate this and you move forward and then you, you break the defense of the enemy. And the second thing is, of course, aviation. Ukraine uh, still lags, uh, lags behind Russia in, in fighter jets. And uh, sadly, we had also the news over the past week that the training of Ukrainian pilots on F-16 
have been delayed. So this is uh, very, I think, sad news for Ukraine because it, it, it might also point out that certain delays in the very idea of uh, supplying the fighter jets, the modern fighter jets to Ukraine. What do you think? Well, in my opinion, uh, the thing that I would like to say here is um, I don't really understand what the West, by protracting these things, by postponing the training of uh, Ukrainian pilots, for instance, what the West is still afraid of when it comes to Russia. Because uh, obviously, all these um, slow movement on the part of the West, of the US, of the Plains coalition, because it majorly are several uh, European states, Romania, the Netherlands, Denmark, as had been previously um, said. Uh, they protract their decisions based on their fear that Russia would overreact or something. But my message here would be to those who would listen to this, like what guys, what you are still afraid of, what has Russia still not shown in this war, short of the nuclear weapons? Uh, that you are still afraid of. You already are acquainted with all the cards it's playing. And uh, so, uh, and of course, the, I would not say that the nuclear weapon here is on the table because that would be far too uh, desperate in response to just planes. Uh, so uh, my ma main message would be, would be like this to, 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 to the West. We need this swifter because the barriers that you have in, uh, in your imagination about why not they are very artificial and on the other hand if you do this swifter you can save many lives of many ukrainians yes i totally agree with you so it's it's very populistic and naive to say that look we we just need to stop shooting we need just just to stop people dying of course we we all wish that and every day we face the news of our very closest people dying or missing on the front line but is there any other way than just winning this war, than just uh, bringing back justice mm, to those who committed so much atrocities, so many atrocities, not only now, but in the past decades, in the past centuries, such as Russian imperialism? And uh, this moves me to, to the next point uh, that actually we, we, we are discussing all the time the attacks on Ukrainian peaceful cities, civilian cities. And during this week we have the saddest event, uh, our dearest friend, dearest colleague, Ukrainian writer, Victoria Melina passed away. We, uh, we actually talked about her in our previous weekly episode, but we issued it when Victoria was still very, very much injured, critically injured, she was actually without conscience. Uh, the, 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 that strike on Kramatorsk on June 27th was uh, so fatal to her that actually we knew already at that moment, of course, we didn't want to say it, but we knew the closest people of Victoria, her friends, her family members knew that uh, the chances to survive this are very, very low. She passed away in Dnipro in, on July 1st. We recorded a, an episode of In Memoriam of Victoria Melina, which uh, is also going to be published today. And uh, the cruel thing about all this, uh, all this is that uh, we were on the farewell gatherings and funerals in Kiev and Lviv, and 
these funerals were and gatherings were attended by crowds of people, lots of people came to uh, say farewell to, to Victoria, say adieu to Victoria. But during the night after the funerals, Russians attacked Lviv. Lviv, um, a city in western Ukraine, the native city uh, of Victoria, of um, many other Ukrainian uh, brilliant figures, cultural figures, but we know that Lviv was shelled by uh, Russian missiles many times, but it is it is still quite far away from the front line. It's in the west, in the, it's the, the capital of Halicina, Halicia, and that was a strike and probably the most massive missile strike on, on, on Lviv. It was actually the missiles came in the city center, in the downtown, and they and they killed 10 people and wounded another 48. So, as if Russia, Russians were, were chasing Victoria, were chasing uh, in Kramatorsk first, when she, where she came with, with uh, her Colombian colleagues from Colombia, and then in, in Lviv. So, this is, this is the process which... which uh, goes on and on and on and on, and uh, we we started we started making this podcast also during the air alerts in Ukraine. Let us move forward and um, let's talk about some changes in the uh, supplies of weapons, and in particular uh, about the America's decision to provide cluster munitions to Ukraine. What can you say about this? Well, indeed, uh, yesterday uh, there was an, uh, an announcement. It was yesterday, or either yesterday or the day before yesterday, that uh, the U.S. Uh, finally agreed to uh, provide cluster munitions to Ukraine, and basically, uh, American media had been building up tensions—not uh, tensions, but heating up the discussions that this would happen in the days in in the run-up to that uh, to that announcements by the uh, by the U.S. Of course, this is understandably a very uh, well tricky decision in a way, because there is uh, the convention prohibiting uh, international law, prohibiting the use of this kind of uh, uh, munitions. But again, uh, we need to understand which situation we're talking about. We're talking about the situation where uh, Russia has already been using uh, this kind of munitions in the battlefield, which, uh, of course, in the absence, in the previous absence of such munitions in Ukraine, uh, led to the disparity in the losses of manpower in the battlefield. And of course, we need to remember that there, are, there is the issue of the signatory states to, to do these uh, international documents prohibiting, uh, prohibiting the, the use of cluster munitions because neither uh, Ukraine nor the United States, nor Russia to that, uh, to that matter, um, are signatories to, the, to these documents. So this is something that uh, Ukraine, of course, this is not a black and white picture. This is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and Ukraine needs this uh, at this uh, point in time during the counteroffensive. It needs to uh, offset the impact uh, of the volume of the sheer volume of the manpower that Russia has and to, um, and to set off to offset, sorry, uh, the amount of those minefields that Vladimir has been referring to previously today. Uh, so this might be the instrument that Ukraine could use. And of course, what needs to be brought into the into the spotlight here for everybody to understand internationally, that uh, notwithstanding this 
not being the black and white picture, as I said. Ukraine has undertaken to, uh, has committed to uh, adhere to a number of principles in the use of the cluster munitions. First of all, cluster munitions would not be used to in the uh, warfare in the cities. So, for instance, uh, when it comes to, to the warfare around Bakhmut and in this town of Bakhmut, about which everybody has been hearing for nine months so far, uh, I believe those munitions will not be used there because that essentially is the battlefield in the town. So we probably are talking more about the fields, the steppes in the uh, in the battlefield in the south, in the Zaporizhia region, in the south of the Donetsk region, in the Kherson region that is still occupied. So there is not going to be much damage or no damage at all to the civilians. And also uh, there is going to be a strict... Um, reporting, so to say, about uh, when and where Ukraine uses those cluster munitions. And Ukraine already has a record and an impeccable record, reportedly, uh, when it comes to the use of weapons, because we remember that when the first decisions, and even later in the process, uh, when decisions were taken to procure arms to Ukraine, there were entire commissions established, I believe, on the part of the United States, to track whether uh, the weaponry going to Ukraine does not go to any third parties, whether that weaponry is being used diligently and in good faith, and Ukraine never let uh, the suppliers of its weapons down. So this is just another episode, and Ukraine is equally going to be reporting to, to, to the suppliers about the use of this kind of weapons. So Ukraine is going to be held accountable is if anything goes wrong. So we need to understand that Ukraine acts responsibly here and everybody uh, and everybody internationally uh, worrying about this being a dubious step needs to understand that Ukraine and the West are doing everything possible to minimize the fallout, the unnecessary fallout of the of this necessary step to employ the cluster nations in the battlefield. And finally, I would like to say that this, that the use of this kind of weaponry has um, a deadline, because according to the reports, I think that it was by Bloomberg, it was not an official report, but there are reports that uh, the US are going to supply uh, these munitions to Ukraine only until spring before the West, particularly the US, can catch up with the production of the conventional ammunition. Uh, because we know this story that the West, uh, NATO generally was so much not ready to this kind of high intensity in the warfare that its production of ammunition could not catch up and still cannot catch up with the, with Ukraine's needs. And so this, this cluster munitions, this procurement needs to be seen as a, a decision to win time for that production to catch up and to Ukraine to continue receiving uh, the necessary amount of the conventional munitions. Yes, this is a very important point because it also replies to those allegations that actually the West provokes this war, Ukraine provokes this war, Ukraine was preparing for this war. This is a, a messages of Russian propaganda, but actually what we see is that Russians have lots of lots of munitions, lots of shells, lots of uh, rockets, lots of missiles, while both Ukraine and its partners, international partners, have much less, much less amount of them, much less amount of tanks, much less amount of munitions, much less amount of shells, etc., uh, etc. Et now, of course, the big question is whether who will win in this in this. Um, 
um, in in this race. And unfortunately, it's it's very hard. It's very difficult to say right now. I mean, it's very morally very difficult to say. But unfortunately, we are in the new arms race, and this is the reality. Okay, let's let's turn into another point. A very interesting diplomatic point is that the uh, commanders of the Azov Battalion, who were taken as prisoners of war uh, in May 2022 in Mariupol and who were residing, who were brought to Turkey and uh, were subject to a certain deal that they will not return to the war field, to Ukraine, they have been handed over back to Ukraine and they return to Ukraine. What does this mean, Maxim? So, in my opinion, this means two things. First of all, apart from how everybody rejoices here in, in Ukraine about their return, because they have, from the from day one, they have uh, become symbols of Ukraine's resistance, uh, recording the video addresses from the besieged as of style, and just given how much of a, of a symbol Mariupol as such in this war has been. This is understandable how, how rejoicefully it was met in, in Ukraine, this liberation of the heroes. And uh, But that being put aside, I would like to point out two things. First, Erdogan was not afraid to essentially break the reported agreement that the three parties, Ukraine, Russia and Turkey, had uh, when uh, these commanders were initially released last year from the Russian captivity, because the because the agreement was that until the end of the war they would uh, be liberated, but they would stay in Turkey. Apparently, Russia was afraid about their uh, their popularity at home and how they can uh, stir up the anti-Russian sentiments even further, as if it, uh, that was possible, and to mobilize people. For another, for the formation of another Azov battalion, and you know, go to the front front lines once again. And essentially, Erdogan broke that agreement uh, for the benefit of Ukraine. And when uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, came came to visit Turkey this week, about which we'll talk a little bit in more detail a little bit later, uh, he led those five people home with him. So this shows there are not so many formal official details given by the parties, so this would be widely a guess. But I think that this testifies to the fact that Erdogan does not, is not really afraid of Putin and thinks of himself as a, of a very influential player and influential enough not to be afraid of Russia. This, tells, this is very telling, by the way. Uh, the fact that Russia is not feared in the region, the fact that there are other powerful players in the region, and that there is reason for Turkey, not just uh, power to rely on, but reason for Turkey to uh, do this and to basically slap Russia with it. Uh, this tells very much about the balance of power in, in the region. And of course, this could not be very um, very pleasant for Ukraine. And uh, the second thing is that I think this appeals between the lines, but this appeals to the topic, to, to Russian propaganda and its efforts to portray Azov uh, people as neo-Nazis and uh, everything. Uh, everybody knows this narrative in the West. So would Erdogan 
be would he dare to liberate somebody who if they really were neo-nazis knowing how the world would respond how sensitive how sensitively the world could respond to that kind of thing uh, and especially given that uh, at home mr erdogan also knows what political rivalry is there are also uh he like from the far right opposition as far as i understand in turkey uh people that are abroad and uh, turkey is trying to chase them that i mean erdogan's regime is trying to to chase them down so he knows how these optics uh is important and still he chose to uh present the world with this decision that i'm going to let them go uh, so this of course is another uh, is another painful thing uh, for Russia from this side too. Uh, so this is why this is important in my opinion. But at the same time, you you say that Turkey has kind of a, did not respect the agreement uh, when when Azov commanders were handed over to Turkey. But we can say that Russia was first to break it because Russia has put the people from defenders from of Azov Stal, not only from Azov Battalion, but all, on, on trial, on a show trial. And this was all, also clearly the breaking of the agreement because the agreement was that it was kind of an extraction and then they will not be uh, persecuted. And of course, Russia tries to use this card and to say that, look, we are now putting on trial uh, prisoners of war, and we are saying that they are actually not prisoners of war, but war criminals. Uh, but among those people who were put on the show trial in Russia, uh, people who had nothing to do even with with fighting, because there were women, women who were preparing food for uh, for defenders of Azovstal, and etc. Uh, etc. Et and the second thing is, of course, that Russia brought this uh, grain agreement to actually to almost to an end so it's it's not respecting the grain agreement the, the kind of thing which is a key thing in this tri trilateral very difficult uh, combination uh, between uh, ukraine uh, turkey and un and russia turkey and un so yeah so maybe this is just a reaction on the fact that russia is not following these agreements and the agreements are void let us move forward and try to discuss the diplomatic diplomatic uh, uh, efforts of President Zelensky. Uh, he carried out a diplomatic tour to several countries. Why is this important? Well, this is important, uh, first of all, because of the timing when this is happening, because this is happening before uh, the NATO summit, on which we'll touch upon a little bit later. But also it is important because uh, of the array of countries that uh, Zelensky visited. So first of all, he visited uh, Bulgaria, uh, then he went to Czech Republic, to Slovakia, and then finally to Turkey. And uh, several things uh, were on the agenda primarily. First of all, that was the further procurement of uh, of uh, weapons to Ukraine, and there already have been reports on the uh, on successful negotiations on the uh, helicopters, howitzers being initially procured to Ukraine, and of course this is this visits should be largely viewed as um, uh, an attempt and a desire of Zelensky and leaders of those states to get on the same page uh, or 
to check on the page on which they are together, uh, on the contents of the page, so to say, in their run up to the to the summit that is going to uh, happen uh, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And uh, because three of the countries that Zelensky visited, they are the Eastern European countries. And uh, the Eastern European countries are the ones that usually are the biggest allies uh, when it comes to Ukraine's hero integrational efforts. So, uh, of course, this is evidently something, and uh, this is the block of countries that uh, Zelensky wants to affiliate with, uh, going in with the bank for, for, this, uh, uh, for this forthcoming summit. Yes, and uh, this is important how it will, what, what, what will be the results of this visit? We will see in a couple of days. Another diplomatic uh, story is Ukrainian-Polish story. And uh, on July 9th, President Zelensky and Polish Poland President Duda met in Lutsk. Lutsk is a capital of Volyn, uh, a Ukrainian region, to jointly commemorate the victims of the of the Volyn tragedy. Mm, of course, this is also a very important sign because we understand that. Uh, the, the 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 memory story behind it, the memory politics, the events in um, 1943, uh, when a lot of ethnic Pol Poles were killed uh, in Volin um, by Ukrainians, but also Ukrainians were killed uh, by the Poles uh, on those years, and and this was an inter-ethnic, big inter-ethnic uh, conflict, and we can. We can also say that there are elements of ethnic cleansing uh, on the part of Ukrainians. Uh, this is a very important topic, uh, but at the same time, this is a topic of memory. And uh, this topic should be talked about and uh, uh, entire uh, commemoration, entire reconciliation, repentance, all those very important uh, things. What can you say about this meeting, Maxim? Well, uh, there basically are two things that I would like to say. That uh, the bone of discord when it comes to the Volin tragedy, uh, to Jez Volinska, as uh, Poles, uh, the, the Poles call it, um, this is, first of all, the vocabulary that is being used. Uh, because uh, Ukrainians have been known to call this predominantly the guerrilla warfare, the Polish guerrilla warfare against Ukrainian guerrilla warfare and whatnot. Uh, while uh, the Poles tend to think that this could even have been a full-fledged uh, local, but still massacre genocide. And uh, so that's one. And secondly, there um, is, in my opinion, a sense of disparity on the part of the uh, Polish side uh, as to uh, that, that one of the parties is not sufficiently sorry for what happened compared to the other party. But this is the theory of the issue. What is important here is that with uh, meetings like yesterday in Lutsk, uh, the leaders of the two countries, uh, they show that uh, yes, there are issues in the memory politics that we are probably going to talk about for much time later, uh, after the war especially, because now this issue is in the background. But the message they are saying is that what we have now, the brotherly nature of our relations and support we have now, is in any case above that. We are going to argue, probably, because this issue is not closed yet. In the future, 
uh, on, on this memory politics, but this is not going to be above, above the more important things, which is our cooperation in the hard times. So I, th I feel like that has been the, the signal, uh, first of all. And secondly, once again, this is a blow uh, on Russian propaganda because this also has been a narrative by Russia that uh, Ukraine, first of all, it played into the narrative that Ukrainians are Nazis because look, they have uh, have been killing people, not only like in the East, like, meaning Russians, Russian people in Ukraine, but also to the West of its borders, like other, uh, like other peoples. Uh, Polish in, in, in this uh, case, but also it shows uh, Russian propaganda even went further. It wanted to show that the West is not going to support Ukraine so much because it remembers how much Ukraine had hurt, for instance, Poland in this case, uh, with it supposedly neo-Nazis practices. And this is something that uh, basically impeaches that kind of uh, Russian uh, narrative. And which of course uh, sobers up the world and shows to the world that uh, much of it uh, has not been true in the first place. Uh, I mean, what Russia has been saying on the topic. And secondly, as I said, uh, Ukraine and Poland know better than to make this the cornerstone of their relations in these hard times. I think it is also very important to to to, uh, to understand that the work should be done by historians, professional historians, maybe by common commissions, and uh, Ukrainian, both Ukrainian and Polish historians should be open to to the truth, uh, however unpleasant it might it might be sometimes. Ukrainians, uh, and and this is a process that actually started, I think, in the past decade in Ukraine. The, and the understanding that despite all the sufferings that Ukrainians have suffered uh, throughout our history, in the Russian Empire, uh, in other empires, also on the Polish rule uh, in different episodes, but Ukrainians were not only victims. Ukrainians could have been also perpetrators, both during the Holocaust and uh, uh, and during the Valin tragedy. And it is also important for the sanity of uh, of national consciousness to understand that. But again, this should be established. Facts should be established. Historians should work. Also the question, who is responsible for that? Because there is a debate where, for example, UPA is responsible for that, Ukrainian insurgent army, or it was rather a spontaneous, uh, uh, spontaneous cruelty uh, of Ukrainians against the Poles in Volinia which we, of course, had in our history also in the 18th century, the so-called Haidamaki movement, uh, which was also very, very cruel. So uh, lots of things to discuss and uh, to look into the past with, with open eyes and, uh, and very frankly and uh, without ideology, without this, which, is, which, which might be present both on the Polish and, and Ukrainian side, a political side like saying okay, we, we were only victims and you were only killers or vice versa. Because, of course, what happened in Volin in 1943 had the whole background of, uh, of the situation in, in the Polish state uh, in, in between the wars and uh, of pacification, the so-called pacification, the, the attack on the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church and many other things. Um, but it is important that Ukrainians, even during this time, I don't think that that uh, we we need to delay this question. At least, 
in the uh, what what concerns historical work as far as we can go with historical work even now uh, joint commissions and cooperation between historians that would be that would be better and the last topic for today is NATO summit approaches and we will talk about it of course during this week a lot at Ukraine world so what what are the expectations on the Ukrainian side and what are the maybe real politic on the NATO side Maxim well, uh, my feeling is that there is uh, an entire array of uh, mixed signals uh, in the run-up to the summit, uh, or maybe not even mixed signals, but uh, divergent um, expectations from different sides uh, as to the outcomes of the summit when it comes to Ukraine. So, uh, of course, Ukraine is trying to be maximalist in its approach to the forthcoming summit, and uh, President Zelensky even said that uh, he was not going to attend the summit uh, if he did not know that the summit would adopt the decision uh, on Ukraine's membership, uh, meaning that it's going to happen and it's going to happen as fast as possible, preferably uh, without any map and preferably uh, immediately after the war without no preconditions. And uh, on the other hand, there have been statements uh, by the American establishment, for instance, this week, uh, basically saying that uh, Ukraine is still not ready to, to be a, a NATO member state. And of course, we need to uh, remember things that so many countries in the West, probably all countries in the West, cannot say out loud, but probably everybody is thinking that, that this would also trigger Russia, and very much so. So once again, there is that logic there. Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, from what I heard uh, just before the recording of this podcast is that uh, basically Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba reported that uh, the NATO member states have agreed on abolishing the MAP, the membership action plan for Ukraine, uh, which means that uh, Ukraine is not going to be required to undergo that stage of its, uh, uh, of its uh, accession to NATO. So there is that at least. And uh, I also heard a couple of days back that, uh, and I think there were signals both from Ukraine, uh, from Ukraine's uh, sectoral vice prime minister, Olha Stefanishna, and from some leader in the West, I don't remember who exactly, but somebody said that Zelensky is indeed going to, uh, to attend the summit. It was allegedly later confirmed, which given what I'd said pre say previously, means that Ukraine is going to receive something more or less clear on the summit uh, at the summit of course fingers uh, crossed because it's a huge leap not just for ukraine we understand how um how uneasy it is going to be to reconcile the positions of more than 30 member states in the west as to whether to give this perspective to ukraine and whether to trigger russia or not uh, and of course, the summit has not happened yet, so we'll have to see. But uh, for now, notwithstanding how mixed the signals have been, as I said, there is um, there are grounds for cautious optimism that tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, we are going to take uh, some something of a shortcut to NATO membership. It's not going to happen in a week's time or before the end of the war, but hopefully this will be a big leap. Thank you, Maxim. Thank you so much for this analysis. Uh, again, we will try to dig deeper into the subject 
over this week. Uh, follow our Twitter, Ukraine World. Twitter will try to make uh, some Twitter space on the subject and maybe some analytics. But of, of course, the question of NATO membership is a very, very difficult and very multi, uh, multi-layer question. And we can say that, yes, President Biden said that Ukraine is not ready, but maybe we can also say that NATO is not ready. And uh, Maybe it's it's time to overcome this mutual unreadiness and become ready. Thank you, Maxim. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine and our weekly overview of key events in and around Ukraine over the past week, early July. My, my name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. I was joined by Maxim Panchenko, Ukraine World's analyst and journalist. Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We really cherish your support. We really cherish this crowdfunding because it means that uh, your uh, our audience actually needs what we're trying to produce, how we're trying to explain the Ukrainian developments. Thank you so much. Stay, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.